We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Ben. And tonight we're looking at the fourth episode of Series 10, Doctor Who, Knock Knock, by Mike Bartlett. Bill and a group of college, let's call them acquaintances, decide to take lodgings together after a relatively unsuccessful search because they're poor, starving students. They happen upon the most fortunate of happenstance when a kindly old gentleman offers to lease them rooms in his gigantic, creaky old house. The doctor helps Bill move in and becomes immediately suspicious and won't let it go. As the house slowly eats the occupants one by one, the doctor and Bill solve the mystery of the mysterious landlord and the wooden occupant of the tower. So, knock, knock. Are we four for four? Yeah, I would say we are. <laughs> okay, that is exactly my response. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to give this one. I'm going to say I like this one. This is the weakest of the bunch so far. Though. Yes, it is. It's, it, it, is, it is adequate. It's unoffensive. Yeah, totally unoffensive. <laughs> um. I read that elsewhere, too. I read someone else had said the same thing. Um, I found the episode to be adequate. Uh, th- there was nothing about it that put me off. It wasn't um, a nail-biter or you know one of these really intense, scary episodes. And we've had those last year. And this one had, was built up as that, too. Yeah. Lot. And, I mean, it was, it was more classic. In terms of you know the creepy old house and the strange landlord and something you know things like that, uh, but it was okay. You know, I mean, I liked it well enough. I think I think that's one of the most damning but accurate uh, reviews I've I've heard. <laughs> I uh, I enjoyed it. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't really find it scary. Oddly enough, and I'm I'm definitely not a creepy bugs person. Um, that's usually a big. Uh, creep show on me, and I am referring uh-huh. back to creep show too. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not bugs. into. Yeah, I don't. I don't like bugs. These didn't bother me in the slightest because no. I think well, you know when they were when they were crawling around on the table or the doctor was chasing the single one. That was kind of a good looking CGI weird alien bug, but I think the illusion failed. I know that the intent was that they pass through, become sort of molecularly phase through things, people's feet, tables, walls. But the effect, while accurate to what they were telling us we were supposed to be seeing, still just looked like bad double exposure to me. It was unconvincing. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was, if, if you're talking you know, something like on a cinematic level, or on a horror level, then yeah, it it did not it did not convince me. But I didn't think it was a, a crappy effect. I mean, it was it was an, I thought it was a suitable effect for Doctor Who. No, I'm not. I'm not. The quality of the effect isn't what I'm getting at. It's it's what they were trying to do. So the bug just kind of is passing in and out, and 
they did it perfectly adequately. It just, for me, made it unreal to the point where, yeah, the bugs didn't bother me. And and it's it's the first time through, I thought eh, I don't get it. And the second time I watched it, and I'm like, yeah, I think I think it's yeah. I don't know what they could have done, but something about it just took the visceral nature of the bugs crawling around and and just withdrew the potential terror or horror or disgust or whatever it is from me. It, it, it's just, it's not, yeah, it's not the special effects. It's what the special effects were trying to achieve, which I think they did. And I, I think that took some of the tension out because I wasn't, wasn't bugged once by seeing the bugs crawling around on anything. No, not, not really. Uh, I mean, maybe when it creeped out of the wood. The first one. well, that actually didn't bother me. Um, it's when it went into the one girl's shoe, you know, and through her foot and all that. I'm like, hey, you know, but but it's it's not because I thought it was a convincing effect or anything like that, um, or, or even a convincing idea. It just the idea of a bug in my shoe. I start so I it kind of, so in a way it took me out. So I so it 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 kind of served two purposes. I mean, it I, I got creeped out a little bit, but in my own head. Hey, you know, we haven't had one of those uh, classic Eugene childhood stories in a while, but that one. Oh, yeah, and me. I know, uh, yeah, I know the one you're about to tell me. Oh, you, you know this. You've told, yeah, the cockroach the in cockroach the shoe. The cockroach in the shoe, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here in Arizona, we have cockroaches that are. Oh, the, the, the size inches. of your fist. Yeah, they're, they're two inches, uh, they can be. And uh, I went to school once, and I thought my sock was bunched up under my arch. And it was like that for a couple of hours in the morning. And I finally had the opportunity to pull the shoe off to get the thing out. And out comes the car. Not even phased. The thing just kept off. And for that point on in my life, bugs like that have freaked me out beyond belief. And that's why bug shows um, really, really bug me. No pun intended there. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of – it was very strange to me in this one that it just had – no effect at all. And maybe it's because I'm just old now. I don't know. I don't want to see a swarm of bugs to find out. <laughs> but, but, well, uh, no, I mean, you know of my total arachnophobia. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I have seen like documentaries mm-hmm. where with swarming bugs and I just get freaked out. It's true. It's still in the worst too, way. So, yeah. so it's not. It, it's not that we're older. It's just that this was not. It, it, it for whatever reason that did not convey any sense of terror. Hmm. And, the, and from from this episode, yeah. And you know, even maybe I'm I'm being inured to it as well. But during Thin Ice, of course, we lost that boy who fell through the ice and he died. And there was a certain kind of impact to that. Not as much impact as it had on Bill, obviously, but, you know, there was a sort of, wow, they, they yeah. killed a kid. And here they had bugs eating these kids up, and not once did it bug me. Again, no pun intended. But Well, I mean, yeah, it, it, it kind of did a little, a little with me. Was it cheaper because they came back? Uh, you know, I've been asking myself that. Um, I, to be honest, I, I don't think so. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't bothered by it. Uh, but I wasn't, I didn't think that it cheapened it in any way. I guess I, I'm pretty neutral on that. 
This was definitely one of those everybody lives, except, I mean, all the previous residents who didn't come back. But uh, um, I, I, so, so um, Mike Bartlett, new writer for Doctor Who, certainly not a new writer, um, a well, well-regarded writer who's never written for Doctor Who before. Uh, not too long ago, he apparently had a uh, award-winning show on the BBC, Dr. Foster, um, which I've not seen. It doesn't interest me either. It sounds like people having affairs and stuff, so typical drama affair. But um, I think he may have even done the adaptation of Chariots of Fire. Um, but um, what did you think of him as a first-time writer? Not bad. I mean, it's it, it, again, it, it was an adequate episode. I, mean, I think we've seen other writers, you know, first time have just kind of, you know, you know uh, crashed and burned at it. <laughs> uh, in I the didn't, forest I didn't, of the night. For, yeah, exactly. Uh, I didn't get that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I like Kill the Moon. I can't help it. Uh, but I didn't get that. You know, maybe it's because... Well, he, I, I, maybe he approached it in a rather safe manner, for starters. All right. It is. Uh, some, something else that helps, and I think this has been the greatest asset for this season thus far, is that there's, like, no emotional baggage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've, we've had so much of that the last couple of years, uh, last several years. None this time. Not yet. There's not, not yet. Well, I, th- I think there might be just a touch, but we can talk about well, that later. Yeah, but it's it's just a little tiny thing. I mean, that's to me that felt more incidental to the episode itself, not something that carries on throughout the duration of the series, hmm. like we saw, you know, oh. two years ago. Am I a good man? That kind of stuff, or you know, or the whole thing with Danny Pink. I mean, all of that emotional weight just really brings not just the entire series down, but it brings the episodes down, I and 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 it, it. I think the writers, you know, whether it's Moffat or somebody else, I mean, they've they've got to work with within this really bizarre confine of of whatever this arc is, and the arc that we've got so far is very very secondary, if not tertiary, so far. So I think what's what's happened is this has given the writers uh, a very free hand to write an episode in the manner that they feel most comfortable with, and I think uh, the writer for this one he just he he wrote an episode that he felt would have been safe, it would have been adequate for again if it felt sort of like classic Doctor Who in a way even though there really weren't that many ghost stories that I can remember you know in in the classic years ghost light. Oh, please. <laughs> yeah, okay. Someday yeah, that's we, a bad, bad example. Just, someday we should just review that just for the purpose of dissecting how bad Doctor Who can really get. But, oh, uh, yeah, I'm in sure so many ways. Somebody thinks they're, that's the best episode ever. But That or Caves of Androzani. I'm sorry. I'm beginning to speak my mind again. I need to stop. Yes, keep your mind in check. Mm. <laughs> I you know I so looking at the construct of the story, um, I thought the sort of comedy students hunting for an apartment wasn't overdone, but no, it was, it was okay. nice. 
it was I mean it was a certain levity to it but it it yeah it didn't feel overplayed um I think the uh well the part where they were trying to get settled in I thought there was an interesting shift in the dy- not shift in the dynamic but a new facet to the dynamic between Bill and the doctor she's clearly setting up boundaries yeah and I gather that she really only knows one of these people and that the others are sort of an extended group of acquaintances all working for the purpose of having an apartment, which having never done that in college, I still find that to be a terrifying concept of just, eh, let's just find six people and go live together in a house. It's like, ah. mm. So that bit where Bill said, and a bit scary, she was talking about being in a house with six strangers, well, she obviously knows one of them, but uh, yeah, it, it kind of resonated. But but the fact that she doesn't want the doctor there, like, okay, I'll get out. I want to do my friends. I like that. I like that a lot because obviously, again, Clara and the doctor too close. Um, even when she was with Danny Pink, you know, there was this sort of, it's almost like she was cheating. Well, she was cheating on him with him at times. Yeah, yeah she was. Uh, so... There was this, you know, we're we're inextricably drawn to each other no matter what. And yet here, you know, I think Bill's sensibly saying, you know, take it out. Now, I don't know if any of that has to do with the fact that everyone in that room knew who the doctor was. Yeah, well, I mean. Because he is the famous lecturer at school. He's the famous lecturer. And now th- and there, there are a couple of things here that did bother me. Uh, not enough to negatively impact the story, but I was not entirely happy with how they wrote Bill. All the time. I mean, there are, there are moments where she was, you know, she was Bill, the the Bill that we know from you know the first three episodes. But there were co- there were two things that just really kind of bugged me. You know, I'm sorry that I had to use the word bug. It's kind of hard not to. Uh, yeah, um, the first one is the fiction that the Doctor is her grandfather. Now, I kind of wonder if that isn't some bizarre callback. I think it is. Yes, and and if that's the case, it was badly done. Mm-hmm. For the very reason that you just mentioned earlier, all the people there, they know who he is. Why are you lying? You know, it, it, it doesn't work here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you were in a completely different situation, nobody knows you, nobody knows him, but you don't want people to know who he is, well, then, yeah, do the lie. But here in, in modern-day London, of course everybody knows who the doctor is. Especially, you know, especially the students. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all the university students know who he is. So, don't say that. I mean, that's that to me that that cheapened, um, it, it it cheapened the relationship. Well, no, it didn't cheapen the relationship, but it 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 lowered um, Bill's credibility in in my eyes. So, do you do you think that? A and that was only one student. Well, just hit that one for just a second. Do you think a student would possibly want to shy away? from letting the other kids know that she has a sort of special friendship with one of the lecturers at the school? Uh, no, but if she could have been honest to the point, I mean, not totally, you know, not say, oh, he's my time, tra- you know, he's a time-traveling alien, don't do anything, of th- anything like that tutor. sort. He's my tutor. But you saw what happened to her, whatever she is, not stepmom, but foster mom. I mean, the second she mentioned that, there was the immediate assumption that there was sex involved. Yeah, well, that's an older person, too. Exactly. Well, so would these kids, is she trying to avoid that? It's like, this is harmless. 
this is harmless. This old man helping me, he's my grandfather. That was kind of what I got, but I agree it wasn't exactly very well done. Okay. I didn't think it was well done. Number two. And the, 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 the number two is Bill was so set on establishing the boundaries, and that's one thing. I, I don't have the idea you – know, I, I don't have a problem with the establishing of boundaries uh, in of itself. But the doctor was clearly trying to indicate to her that there was something wrong, and she didn't trust him. And she only simply saw him as insinuating or, – or but inserting himself into her life when she didn't want him there. And he's trying to indicate to her there is something wrong here. You, you know, even after he points out, you know, they, they make the observation about the rustling of the trees, and and uh, he said, "There's no wind." Yeah, you know, he's trying to tell them, or at least trying to let Bill know there is a problem here. Mm-hmm. But she just won't listen until things really start to go sour. I agree. There was a little faltering on both of their parts there. Again. How many stories that you watch on TV exist only because one character is keeping information from another character? I mean, the whole output of the CWDC universe is predicated entirely on everyone's lying to everyone to protect them, to not yeah. protect them. Or something. Yep. And that's, that's soap opera land. It, it is. The it could is, have been yes. a little more straightforward about this and... Bill should have been a little bit more on the uptick because, once again, towards the end of the episode, it's demonstrated that Bill is very sharp at putting these yes. puzzle pieces together. And yet at the beginning, you know, I think her, her desire to get in and get situated and, and establish herself, maybe, maybe, it's a, maybe it's an independence thing. If she's been living with a foster mother and now she's moving out in a first place on her own, all right, I can kind of, I can kind of see it. I mean, when I was that age, I was ready to go, and I wanted to set up my place, and I wanted to live in my place, and I didn't want my dad to come visit for a while. So maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe he's more in tune with kids that age than we are. I don't know, but but she should have been listening, and he should have been talking a little bit more. Yeah, about it. So yeah, okay, I'll accept that. I'll accept that there is definitely something not quite right there. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about. Well, we don't need to try to make sense of the the why the house is eating these people or why the house is keeping the woman Elsa alive <laughs> through it. None of that makes much sense. So, not not going to try to put any kind of sense on it. Let's talk about the creepy old landlord. Mm-hmm. Famous actor. Oh yeah, uh, famous for playing uh, Poirot, uh, among other uh, among, among other, other roles. Yeah, but really, yeah. that's the one that probably anyone in, on this side of the pond would know him from. And um, what did you think of his performance? I liked him. I mean, he he was able to convincingly portray uh, a variety of emotions. Um, I mean, when we first meet him, he really does come off as just a very kind man. Who's willing to uh, give them some help, and uh, then you got a sense of—I um, wouldn't call it malevolence, but then—but definitely there was something kind of a sense of greediness. He, he but we don't know what. Go ahead. We don't. We don't know what the greediness is. 
Uh, and then later, you know, as, as the, the truth begins to come out, we see more of his motivations come to light. And he portrays all these different areas uh, quite convincingly. I mean, I, I, well, I've always liked him as an actor. Uh, I thought, I, I thought as a, as a character, as the landlord, I, I enjoyed him um, quite a lot. And I thought it, it was a nice, it, it was especially the scenes between him and the doctor when it was just the two of them. There, there was some just really just fun energy going on between those two. Hmm. So I had a minor problem with the performance. Not that there was anything, it's probably more the direction. Because you're right, he, he managed to convey all of those things. The kindly old gentleman. Once they were in the house, he definitely got a, quite a bit more sinister. And you know anybody watching a, a TV show should know that some of the things he said were tip-offs to "you're in big trouble," <laughs> you know, yeah. just this and and his weird actions with the tuning fork and and whatnot. It was just, um, yeah, there was there was that performance. What got me that didn't quite work for me, and it was brilliant. His performance as a little boy, when once mm. you realized that he was the child, even though he was an old man, and I'm not quite sure that that would help, but once he he settled into the mode of being the child and, and doing that, it, it was some of the best acting I've ever seen for someone mm-hmm. trying to convey a sort of childlike as an adult. Because you know what too often happens when people oh. try to be childlike? Oh, it, uh- yeah, yeah, they like they was, revert into something that is not quite accurate. This was just a sort of childlike quality that he managed right. to adopt. What bothered me about it was, and and I looked for it the second time through. It's not there. It's not there at the beginning of the show. So if this guy has always been, is always trying to be this basically a kid in a man's body. Because I think he's lived in the house his whole life without education or anything. I'm not entirely sure about that. But um, it it comes on at the point where it's revealed to you. Yeah. And then it's there in his eyes. I, I, yeah, I, I think it kind of all came out. And if it had been there all the way and you just didn't realize that's what it was, that would have been uh, even better. Because I don't know. it was subtle enough that until somebody told you... It was kind of, um, but you know, that's down to. It could be down to the direction. That could be down to the. Uh, it could be down to something that just isn't quite as clear. Like he's been broken down a little bit at that point. But it kind of came a little earlier than when he was, you know, con- being confronted with the truth. And mm. so I, I just was. I, I was just. I really was marveling at the performance. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, so fine. Again, not, not, not nothing there to make me go, you know, yeah, this episode, now I'd write this off. It's not like that. I enjoyed it through the way. And I really enjoyed his ability to do that, which, you know, very very seldom do you hear me say that about an actor's performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this I, I can tolerate fairly bad acting if I'm enjoying the story. And... And vice versa. Yeah, and it, it's very rare that we come across somebody whose acting can make me go, huh, that's really, let's call it truthful. 
or you know the, the, there was something there was yeah truthful is a very good word not an actor there in that moment he is a childlike old man and yeah that was which you know probably explains why he's been so successful uh, in his acting career because mm-hmm. I, I believed he had that f- horrible mustache and accent uh, when he was doing poor <laughs> Well, it's funny you should mention that. I was watching an interview with him. Uh, this this interview was done some months back, mm-hmm. uh, possibly even last year, and it was just for some morning show on the Beeb. And it, I guess, this came on the heels of it being announced that he would be in Doctor Who because Doctor Who hadn't started filming yet. Right. Uh, but it had been announced, you know, that he was going to be on the show, and inevitably the conversation turned to. Poirot, and he talked about how he could easily climb into Poirot's skin all over again and see everything through Poirot's eyes. He could see an entire situation through you know, Poirot's eyes and his mindset. He could understand, he knew, what would Poirot do in, in each of these different kinds of situations. I mean, basically, he was, he was telling, telling everybody that, you know, without being boastful, I mean, the man is a method actor. He yeah. really knows how to crawl into the skin of whoever it is that he's going to play. And, I mean, that's that's a talent. Mm-hmm. No question about it. Absolutely none whatsoever. Okay, what else have we got in this um, in this episode? Like I said, we we have the we have the concept here that he's pretending to be looking after his daughter, which I'm not a hundred percent sure why he did that. Um, because he wasn't really planning on you know, when he was telling the people that he had a daughter that he was taking care of. I think he was talking to the doctor at that point and saying, you know, it's very important and just to look after them. It's like he's deceiving them, but for no apparent reason, because he's just going to kill them all and feed their energy or something to his mom. So that was a well. Little- it may be, but you know, sometimes uh, if there's an emotional nerve, uh, a raw nerve that's a little too close to the surface, sometimes we catch ourselves saying things that we it would be better if we didn't. So again, I saw something a little truthful in that. Hmm. I mean, he can't say that he's taking care of his mother. I mean, that would have been ridiculous. Um, it, it, so I suppose it's, he, he was just he was just hit on a situation that resonated. And, you know, the id just spoke. It just, just kind of came out. At least that's how I saw it. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that as a valid uh, excuse. He wanted to – so he wants to connect then. Yeah. He wants I mean, to have and, some, and some interaction. There, and therein lies the kid, the alone kid who doesn't have any friends. Yeah, I suppose. That's true. So, all right. Now – I guess I'll pick a little because I like to think about these things. One of the um, one of the criticisms that I had a while back uh, when talking with Simon about the Night Strangler was you have this character who develops a serum to keep people alive or to keep himself young and alive. And somehow he's come to the conclusion that he has to extract a tiny bit of fluid from the back of the brain stem within 15 seconds of the death of a woman 
and he has to do that six times over the course of 14 days and it has to be exactly during this window of time and he's got to take that formula and if he doesn't he's going to die and you have to ask yourself how did you figure that out because that's the kind of thing you can't have a trial and error on it's like right. i'm going along 20 years the first 20 years passes and then oh plunk i'm dead how did you figure out it had to come from the back of the neck and within 15 seconds um you know it which is just ridiculous writing okay that i mean it's just bad that is just bad writing and i'm Sorry to say that about Richard Matheson, but that was just bad writing. This brought that to mind to me. Like, okay, so every 20 years he needs to get six students to be eaten by the bugs to keep his mom going. How does he know that? How did he work that one out (laughs) that he has to do that pattern? Are the bugs talking to him? There's a little hint there that there's a little connection. There, yeah, I. That's the only thing that I can come up with that there is some kind of uh, subconscious connection between him and the bugs, and that's how he came to know what he needed to do. It's it's pretty pretty subtle. Okay, so the doctor does point out through his questions that. This guy does not know who the prime minister is. He is not in touch with the real world. Right. Okay. Which kind of implies he's a shut-in. But we yep. know he isn't because he was out in the streets. Well, when he's looking students. when when he well, yeah. Uh, he's probably I would imagine that the only time he ever comes out is when he's collecting those six souls and the rest of the time he is in the house with his wooden mother buying clothes so that he can as he grows older and older, getting yeah, food, but all of those things he must have to do. So he's not well, he's not completely shut in, and yet he doesn't bother. You know, did he go to school? He was he was about a ten year old boy when this thing happened. Did he? Has he ever been educated? Did he have any other parents? What happened to socials? Did, were they the first? Well, to- he 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 figured out how to do a contract, and that is the other one. What the heck? is that contract about because it feels like they're setting us up for one of those oh you didn't read the contract with the devil well i know yeah i mean you know, i got the but same there's thing nothing to it they were going to eat the doctor the doctor didn't sign the contract so apparently the contract is meaningless all he had to do is to get him in the house and say okay you're in the house uh, i'll just we'll you know something come on in spend the night if you like it, we'll sign the contracts in the morning, and they get eaten, and it never, and they never have to do the contracts. And it, it just was, you know, it was, it was a red herring. And it did feel like selling your soul to the devil. That's exactly what it felt like, and and the fact that that came to nothing, or that you know he didn't have a a moment where he's like, well, I can't have the bugs eat you, doctor, because you didn't sign the contract, which is kind of what I expected. Dumb. In fact, yeah. in fact, James, that was like the first thing. When he started to threaten the doctor, James sitting over on the sofa and he pops up, he didn't sign a contract. He can't do anything to him. I'm like, okay, that's pretty astute because I don't think I've ever once shown him uh, a TV show or a Twilight Zone or anything where you've got the whole contract with the devil thing. So right. he, he pulled that. It was, he tweaked it instantly. And and that, of course, drove it home for me, too. I mean, I'd noticed it, but 
then the fact that it was such a glaring error that my 11-year-old jumps up on it, then I'm like, okay, yeah, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Hmm. My 12-year-old <laughs> spotted it. Anyway, but don't let James hear that. He's 12. <laughs> well, assuming he doesn't listen to podcasts. That's right. We don't let him listen to podcasts. So, so yeah, that was that was a little bit of the... Of course, the contract featured relatively prominently in the right. trailers, and we have discussed every episode so far seems to have trailer bait written into the episode. Yeah, and the other thing is, I mean, it the whole bit with the contract was a trope. Mm-hmm. And so it might have been an attempt at creating, uh, you know, at, at going for style over substance. You know, you're just inserting this this thing because it is such a trope in in uh, scary scary stories. It's always that, sinister when you're going to get so much for so little. All you have to do is to sign the contract. Sign this contract, exactly. I mean, that's. I mean, we as the audience, we immediately know what's going to happen, and if we watch it without a critical eye. We just find ourselves like, oh, dear, you just signed the contract. That's a terrible thing. Now let's find out what awful thing is about to happen to you. Mm. you know, but when you look at it critically like we're doing, you know, then you realize it, it does not hold up. It's, it's a bad story trope that was so not necessary, especially since nothing ever came of it. I mean, had there been, excuse me, had there been just a couple more uh, little, little dialogue? A few lines here or there that explain the nature of the contract, you know, maybe we could we, we wouldn't be having this particular conversation. Mm-hmm. But the fact that nothing does come of it, we do have to kind of point out that it is uh, it, it's it's a trope that is ill used. Did you happen to notice here on page 24 of this contract that it said, in the event that we die by being eaten by bugs, we forfeit all right to our property? You know, it's like anything <laughs> But so here's the one, the other one that kind of bugs me there. Again, we're just going to keep using bugs me. Bill knew it was too good to be true. And she goes for it anyway. Yeah. And she went for it anywhere. Anyway. And the others, honestly, I don't believe they're that stupid. They're all no. university students and they're, they've just been through this. Here's a place where the bedrooms are actually the landing on a stairway because that's what you can afford. And here's a place that's next to, I don't know what that thing was, a recycling plant or some sort of industrial thing because that's all you can afford. And then suddenly the kindly old man is offering you an incredible place for no price. And they're all like, who cares? Digs, man. Woohoo! <laughs> like, uh-uh. Yeah, again, this is playing on some really bad stereotypes. It's a, it's a bad trope again, uh, but kind of necessary, or at least the writer felt it was necessary in order to advance your story. Six teenagers go into a haunted house. And don't come out. Don't come out. It's a roach motel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good. That's very good. <laughs> so I don't know that I have anything else. I, I am a little disappointed that it's another Love Conquers All kind of ending. And the doctor really doesn't do anything. He's like, you're the mom? You tell him what to do. Right. Oh, okay. So is that the BBC's way of telling children that they must always obey their parents? Was that what this was all about? It was a subtle, hmm. subtle mind control game hmm. for the children of the UK? Well, the I'm lo- I, I will not dismiss that thought. Okay, fair enough. 
but yeah, the doctor really kind of didn't. He just he didn't even cotton on that she was the mom. I mean, the import- not at first. The important cl- Bill did it. Yeah. So the doctor, for all his vaunted intelligence, would not have come to that conclusion without Bill's help, and he would then not have been able to tell her that she could control the bugs because she's the mom, which you'd still think the bugs would be all like, no, no, the landlord feeds us. We'll listen to him, but right. apparently apparently not. So that was, mm, as I, I would have liked to have seen, you know, I really did appreciate the fact that in the last episode in Thin Ice, the doctor had to do something, but he made the bad guy blow up the chains. But in other words, the doctor laid the trap and the bad guy loosed it. If he uh-huh. hadn't tried to blow it up, he wouldn't have freed the creature. The creature wouldn't have killed him, etc., etc., etc. Right, right. In this one, we're back to that. Well, even like we had in the pilot, where at the end, it's really not about doing anything. It's really just about, okay, you know, you got to break your promise. Or, no, no, you you got to go out and live. No, I don't want to. Okay, well, then we're going to die. But I love you. Bye-bye. Eh. I don't know if that's supposed to be a theme this year, mm. but... Um, it's a little passive for the endings I like to get out of my adventure shows. Anyway, one other question. Okay. I don't think I have anything else. I don't have anything else. Um, well, actually, we do have to talk about one other thing. But let's talk about the first one. Have you – did you know that this was a special audio version of Doctor Who? Yes, actually, I did read that somewhere that um, by normal, you, yes, audio presentation uh-huh. of this episode. And if you listen to it with headphones, it is kind of obvious. I mean, I I have not yet listened to it with headphones to find out. But knowing that, there are a few places in this episode where it is very obvious, like the I knock on the guy's room. He knocks back, even though we know he's dead. I knock on the door again, and then knocks from all around the house. Yeah. Can you imagine got, if you were sitting there with 3D audio spinning your we, head? We, we heard it in surround. <clears throat> I'm not 100% sure that that is supposed to be as accurate. I, 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 don't, gather, know, I don't know if I it's supposed. There's a different version that you have I don't know to if, uh, I, get I, off the iPlayer. Maybe. I don't know if it is accurate or not. I do know that with all the episodes that we watch with the iPlayer, that they all come in in, a, in some kind of 5.1. Mm-hmm. And there, there's, there's always surround. And this one, it was very apparent, more so than others. And, and actually, uh, it, the, the bit that I re- noticed most of all was the sound of the bugs as they swarmed. Hmm. Because it would hit – there were moments where it hit the rear channels. And it would go from side to side. So I was very much aware of this sense of, again, a surround effect. You know, but that's, that's nothing new. That would make sense. Uh, now, the other place that seemed like it was obvious that they were playing with sound was the doctor and the crisp. When he bites hmm. into that chip and it's like, and then steads the room. It, it, hmm. Those two scenes, the chip, the, the room knocking, felt like, oh, I don't know, every 3D movie of the 50s. <laughs> right, you can you can watch those films and like the creature from the Black Lagoon, and it doesn't matter how good they are or how you know straight up they're played. There are a few scenes 
where they do something in the direction or the staging where you just know that that was intended, you know, like the creature reaching out at the audience or uh, something being shot towards the camera instead of, uh, you know, at, at an angle like they would normally do just to play up the 3D effect. And I just, that scene and the Doctor and the Crisp, and you're going, oh yeah, they're intentionally playing up the audio here to give to give this more. But I think I was not aware of the bug thing because I have surround also, but I don't have the back speakers hooked up. So I uh, uh, wouldn't have heard that. So that would have been a much more subtle and creepy effect, I can imagine. It uh, was kind of, yeah, it was kind of, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it... It made my, you know, it, it for just a brief moment, it made my skin crawl. But mm-hmm. just, just for, it was just an instant. So, but I guess this is the only episode they're doing that with. So, I'm not sure. I guess well, I, I, gimmick, I'm, but. I, I'm, I'm, I, I was a little, um, I was a little uh, bewildered at this, you know, the announcement about the the special sound on this episode because I kept thinking, well. I, I know that the the B broadcasts in five point one, so especially if you are in in the UK and you get to watch it on BBC One, you can hear it in five point one. So I found myself just a little puzzled as binaural, to binaural is more um, uh, even more separation and more control hmm. than than five point one surround. Well, I think you if, need headphones if, for that, you don't you? You have to have headphones. That's right. If you listen to 5.1 surround in headphones, you don't... You miss out. You don't get it the effect. Yeah, you don't get it. But you can get it with the binaural. So it can it can create the illusion of something behind your head. Right. Even though you're only getting two-point sources of sound. Or at least that's the... Uh, uh, that's what I've been told. Haven't tried it yet. But but must do so. Well, I, I know that... Um, Pink Floyd has used um, that kind of sound effect for a long time on their records, mm-hmm. uh, although they called it holographic sound, but it's it's still the same technology. And there was one track off one of their uh, albums that they did in the early 80s where you heard a rocket uh, launching and exploding, and it was going from forward to back, almost as if it went through your head. So I, I am familiar with that effect. And when done right, it can be it can be pretty powerful. And if they were trying to create a really creepy mood while watching the episode, well, I could see why that would be such a big deal. It would. And uh, if you look on the iPlayer, it's uh, it's listed under Doctor Who Enhanced. Oh, is it really? Yeah, it's definitely a separate. It's definitely. I didn't. A I didn't look for it there. Mm. Well, I don't think it was live on the day. Um, no, we no. Well, Keith and I were out of town, so uh, we had to watch it like late on Sunday. So I'll have to take another look to see if it's there. I mean, well, if you just saw it, obviously it is there, but I, I'll, I need to take a look and just kind of try it out for myself and see what it's like. Put it down there. Put on the headphones, man. Get yourself a bowl of peanuts and some chocolates and get it down. Right. Okay, the last thing, the vault. Oh, God, yeah, the vault. Want to put, put a guess on it this week as to what's in the vault? I think we all know the answer now. <sighs> Well, I, I I keep coming back to the fact that it's the master. And it's got to be the master. And he's the one who's playing the piano. Or she. Right. Well, I don't think it's Missy. It should be an interesting question. I mean, the, the, you know, is it is it Missy from the future that comes in and interferes with this arrangement? Or is it 
the master from the past that comes in and interferes with the situation. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I could I couldn't tell. My my brain kind of says it should be John Sim, but I I just don't know. I'm I'm put odds it's one of the two of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I Although I, I I I mean the argument that it's Missy does have weight to it because I mean, there was the whole proclamation that Missy gave last season about how his, you know, the doctor's closest friend is actually her. Mm-hmm. And so from the very beginning, we've met Missy. She's talked about how much she misses her friend. But we all, meaning we the know doctor. That. You know, back to Roger Delgado and and the doctor. We we've always known that there's some. There's a history. There's a history of childhood um, friendship, if you will. And but consider but this, this. But, but as but as the adults, however, uh, this is the first, uh, to my knowledge, the really first open proclamation with Missy about any kind of feelings of friendship that she has or has ever had for the doctor. That's mm-hmm. the, I mean, that's the very first time that we really get that. What about in, a, in, in, a, in an open statement, in my opinion? What about when uh, at the um, was it the last of the Time Lords? When the master has been shot and the doctor is trying to convince him to regenerate and he refuses. And the doctor is talking. I mean, he's crying. Yeah, but the doctor doesn't want to be alone. The doctor doesn't want to be alone. That's true. And, And you get that, right? You regenerate. You could come along with me. We could... I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. And the master says something to the effect of, yeah, but I'd be a prisoner. And you go... Well, yeah, but – and that's exactly what we've got right here. Yeah. I think that's exactly the setup. I think the oath is not an oath to the Time Lords or to the Sisterhood of Karn or to the the whoever powers it be. It was no, it's an, an oath, oath to, the master. to the master. Yeah. I will stay here imprisoned on Earth too. To be with – to take to be with you to take care of you. I will stay here yeah. and be on this planet with you if you don't cause trouble. And that's – why, you know, he's now getting uppity because the doctor is leaving. Even if he's coming back in zero time, yeah. But the else master in the universe, you know, if it was a Cyberman or it was the Santarans or the Daleks or whoever it happened to be, to them that would be nothing because they wouldn't conceptualize it. But to another Time Lord, uh-huh. he knows the Although, doctor is gone and back, but he has in fact been gone. Uh, we know really nothing about the nature of this vault. Now, I will admit, in the beginning, I thought that it was the equivalent of Larry Niven's stasis, cu- stasis cube, where time wouldn't move. But then clearly, uh, from last week's episode, episode three, uh, we understand that's not the case because uh, whoever was inside there was knocking furiously. Mm-hmm. Indicating that um, he was, you know, he was aware of what was going on, and then, and then this time we've got the piano playing. So there is uh, the obvious that there's consciousness inside there. There is the passage of time. So, but does is there also an awareness? Obviously, there must be. It would or seem to indicate hear, he could hear the doctor talk to him. Yeah, but I mean, I mean to say, what, let me rephrase that. Let me clarify that. Uh, is there an awareness of when the doctor? Is traveling, even though he, as you said, he comes back in zero time. Oh, I don't. I, mean, I don't necessarily mean. I, I don't necessarily mean um, a, a physical or mental or psychological awareness. Not not 
not in that way. But in other words, a Time Lord is a timey-wimey thinker. And if, if you promise somebody who is a linear thinker that you're not leaving, and, and you're not because you're there the whole time because you can time travel. But to another Time Lord, he realizes the Doctor could be gone for 50,000 years and then come back to the exact moment, and he's not keeping his oath to him as a Time Lord. So I, I, I guess it's, it's more of just the way that they think about time. I would expect that the Master would consider that more cheating than somebody else who is not a time being, if yeah. you will. That's, that's kind of what I was getting at. So in other words, it's like, no, you can't cheat that way. We both think that way. I, then why can't I leave for a long time and come back into my prison at the same moment? Right. right. It's, it's right. kind of a thing. So, I, and so the other part of it is obviously the doctor is very sentimental about whoever's in there. Yeah. Because we can presume that it's been very recently that he got the piano because of the way Nardol reacted to that. Hmm. You gave him a piano? Well, you never learn, sir. I was like, so he's pointing out that the doctor is getting he's, sentimental. He's, soft. Yeah. he's getting soft. And obviously that's going to be bad because uh, as we just saw in this episode, love conquers all. Oh, wait a minute. No, no. Sorry. We're going to find out that that also causes problems for the doctor. And of course now he's coming in and he's going into the vault and he's bringing him Mexican food and he's telling him stories. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's clearly an old friend. I just don't know which... Which version of it is, but I'll tell you what would be the most awesome thing ever. If we opened that vault and we walked in there and it was Roger Delgado's master. That would yeah, be I, the most ooh, awesome thing ever. Ooh, to be honest, I was thinking that very same thing. Just before you even said it, I was thinking that would be amazing if it were Delgado's. And with film tech, you know, or filming technology the way it is today. It yeah, would not. Yeah. I mean, it it wouldn't look you know like he was really you know there, but it would be passable. You know, and you could you know who's to say that you couldn't hire a, a, another actor to play the part? Yeah, you know because you know like David Bradley's doing a, an admirable uh, Hardnell, just as Richard Herndall did in the Five Doctors. What's to say you couldn't get yourself a, a really good actor who could uh, pull off an excellent Roger Delgado? The four. Masters. I've been dying for a multiple master story. I've been, I mean, I well, begged. It's coming. It's coming. And thank God, I, because I begged John Nathan Turner when I saw him at a creation con years ago. And he was like, no, nope, not going to do it because it'll be disrespectful to the memory of Roger Delgado. And I looked at him and said, uh, A, um, oh no, oh, he said that Anthony Ainley wouldn't like it. And I'd already spoken to Anthony. I saw him at a, at a, a Doctor Who con and post the idea to him, and he just smiled and gave that sinister laugh because he felt that that would be a great way to make the Master um, kind of jumpstart his evilness again because he was being relegated into the background constantly you know, with the Ronnie and um, with the Valyard that he didn't feel like he was he, he wasn't the, the evil threat that he that he had been. So the idea of the multiple master thing, he thought that would be a great idea to you know make make the master really evil, the way he used to be, uh, and uh, so I I presented that. And he said, well, you know, it, it it would not be respectful to the memory of Roger Delgado. And I said, and were you respectful to the memory of William Hartnell? And he just brushed me off because he's John Nathan Turner. 
Was John Nathan Turner. Was. But yeah, I've been wanting a multiple master story for a long time. And at least we're going to get it on some level with Missy and the John Sims act, uh, actor. And the guy from the uh, um, Eighth Doctor movie. I can't think of his name now. Oh, my Roberts. Eric, Roberts? Eric Roberts? There we go. Ach! Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, watch the definitive uh, version. Oh, blech. He was disgusting. <laughs> we just watched that not long ago because we um, interviewed uh, a director who made a movie that had Paul McGann in it. It was, it was a horror film, an independent horror film, and Paul McGann starred in it. So we got to talking to him about you know, working with Paul, and uh, we might be getting an interview with Paul McGann, you know, crossing our fingers. Uh, but in any case, it'd make Keith and I want to watch That's, that episode uh, again. Paul John McGann. Right. Well, in any case, uh, it made us watch that episode again, and ugh, Eric Roberts is just loathsome. <laughs> And I'm talking the actor, not the character. I mean, he's just awful in this. I, I really enormously dislike him in that movie. So you know, he could he could not come back, and I would not miss him. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. <clears throat> Next time, I think it's Oxygen. I believe you're right. Soundtrack by Jean-Michel Jarre, um, perhaps. I don't know. And uh, thank you for joining me, Ben. Oh, my pleasure. And listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Cheers. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us? Please consider becoming our sponsor at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Stop by and visit us at our website, fusionpatrol.com. Search for us on Facebook under Fusion Patrol. Check out our Twitter handle at Fusion Patrol. Or just send us an email at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. Please come join the conversation. Our music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf.